Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, April 10th, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. In this talk, Elaine Weiss discusses the historic fight for women's suffrage. Good evening. I'm really thrilled to be here with you tonight, uh, to come home to New York City, and especially to be here at the New York Historical Society. It's a homecoming in many senses. I am a native New Yorker. I'm a New York City girl born and bred, an alumna of the city public schools, PS82. And of course, uh, I came here as a child uh, to view the treasures of the Historical Society, and I used the superb resources of the Society as re- in researching my book. It's also very much a homecoming because New York was the cradle and the crucible and the capital of the American women's suffrage movement. So much happened here. We are looking at a poster, wonderful poster, from the 1917 women's suffrage referendum campaign here in New York State when New York men were asked whether women should be allowed to vote. Of course, only men were asked whether women uh, should be allowed to vote. Women had to make their own convincing case. Let me introduce you to the Brooklyn Women's Suffrage Association sharpshooters. They meant business. My book, The Woman's Hour, The Story of the Suffrage Movement, is also the story of how American women changed the mind of the nation. It's the story of how American women's demand for the vote, once considered radical, crazy, subversive, impossible, was slowly and methodically transformed into something inevitable and transformed into constitutional law. So the Women's Hour is the story of the 19th Amendment, the largest extension of the franchise in our nation's history, giving the vote to half of the citizens of the United States who were not included when the Founding Fathers constructed our government by the people. So the Women's Hour is really about how change can be made in a democracy and in society. And that's a lesson that's always good to learn anew. Because the 19th Amendment was not just a legal change. It was not just a constitutional change. It was not even just an election law change. It didn't just double the national electorate. It didn't just make women full citizens for the first time. It marked a societal change a cultural shift about the role and the rights of women. And that is what made it so controversial and so complicated and so difficult. The fight for women's suffrage is really one of the defining civil rights campaigns in our nation's history. 
It's one that cuts to the heart of what democracy means. Who gets to participate in our government? Who has a voice? And when we say we, the people, do we really mean everyone? And I think that's an important question for us to ponder right now. So the Women's Hour chronicles the explosive climax of that whole struggle during one hot summer in Nashville, Tennessee, in 1920. Now, if you're like me, for too long, you had only a really fuzzy idea of how American women won the vote. And that active verb is very important. We were not given the vote. We were not granted the vote. It had to be fought for long and hard and bitterly. But again, if you're like me and if you've relied on our textbooks, that fuzzy idea goes something like this. A bunch of women meet somewhere in upstate New York, a place called Seneca Falls. It's in the horse and buggy days, and they're wearing hoop skirts and bonnets. It's all very picturesque. And then fast forward a bit, and there's some picket signs, and then poof. American men see the light and give the, the vote to their mothers and wives and sisters and daughters. The textbooks portray it like that. It was the march of progress. It just happened naturally. No, that's not how it happened. It required three generations of fearless activists working over seven decades to secure the right to vote for American women. And the culmination of that whole struggle comes down to one fierce six-week battle staged in Nashville, Tennessee. In the summer of 1920, one last state was needed to ratify the 19th Amendment, giving all women in every state, in every election, the right to vote for the very first time. 35 states had ratified, and... One more was needed. 36 are needed for full ratification, or three-quarters of the states of the Union, and there were uh, 48 states at the time. So 36 are needed. 35 are on, in the bag. Tennessee could be the 36th. And here's an uh, editorial cartoon. At the time, Uncle Sam is trying to button up that 36th state. If the Tennessee legislature approved the amendment, it would become the law of the land just in time for the pivotal 1920 presidential election. If the amendment failed in Tennessee, it could be delayed indefinitely and perhaps not enacted at all. The suffragists could see the nation was um, swinging towards a more reactionary mode, which was actually accurate. And those of us who have lived through the Equal Rights Amendment know that a constitutional amendment can get to the threshold of ratification and not make it to the finish line. So their fears were very well founded. The enfranchisement of half of the citizens of the United States was at stake, and it all came down to Tennessee. Now, by 1920, the suffragists had been fighting for the vote for 72 years. Since that first outrageous demand was made for the vote, by Elizabeth Cady Stanton at that Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention in 1848. And here's a Harper's Magazine <clears throat> drawing of the event. Uh, photography wasn't there yet. And many of those attending the meeting thought that Stanton's asking for the vote was a terrible idea. 
It was going too far. It was radical. It was going to make them seem ridiculous. But there was a young man in the audience who had driven his buggy 50 miles from his home in Rochester to attend the meeting. And he stood up. And it was Frederick Douglass, 30-year-old Frederick Douglass, just 10 years out of slavery. And he stood up and he said, no, you must demand the vote. It will never be given to me and will never be given to you unless you demand it. And he convinced the reluctant attendees at Seneca Falls to approve Elizabeth Stanton's ridiculous idea. And Frederick Douglass would call himself a woman's rights man for the rest of his life. And he truly was. He believed in universal suffrage. He attended almost every women's rights convention all through his life. He's truly one of the heroes of my book. Now, Douglas had already worked with Elizabeth Stanton and the other uh, attendees at Seneca Falls. It was not a coincidence that he was there. Because the women we know as the early uh, first wave suffragists and feminists were actually first abolitionists. That's where they cut their political teeth. Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, Lucy Stone were abolition organizers before they were suffrage organizers. The idea of women's rights, the right to vote being one, grows out of the themes of natural rights central to the abolitionist argument. These women risked their lives speaking to hostile crowds advocating for the ending of slavery. And they worked to convince President Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation and to push for the 13th Amendment, outlawing slavery. Abolition and women's suffrage were sibling movements through the Civil War. But there was a bitter break after, <clears throat> during Reconstruction when women were left out of the citizenship and voting rights provisions of the 14th and 15th Amendments. They had assumed that once the war was over, there would be universal suffrage. Black men, white women, black women would all have the vote. But they were sorely disappointed. They were told that the nation couldn't handle two big reforms at once. And it was not the woman's hour. That's where the title of my book comes from they would have to wait. It was a heartbreaking split, and Stanton and Anthony refused to support the 14th and 15th Amendments since women were excluded. Stanton said, if that word male be inserted, as it was in the 14th Amendment, it will take us at least a century to get it out. She was almost right. It would take 50 years. In anger, Stanton and Anthony expressed vile, racist sentiments against black and immigrant men who were not as well-educated as they were often illiterate, but because they were men, they could vote. <clears throat> it took years to heal that rift. Although the friendship of Frederick Douglass and Anthony and Stanton was restored, race remained a divisive aspect of the quest for women's suffrage. Used as a matter of political expediency, by proponents, and especially by opponents of women's rights to vote, who, as we will soon see, used viciously racist arguments to tr try to thwart passage of the 19th Amendment. Now, in the years since Seneca Falls up to 1920, tens of thousands of dedicated suffragists, white and black women, had waged over 900 
local, state, and national campaigns to win the ballot. They traveled hundreds of thousands of miles to do, as Susan Anthony called it, organize, educate, and agitate in tiny towns and big cities around the country. And you'll see that they go from horse and buggies to cars in the space of the movement. They had to travel because they had to change hearts and minds before they could ever think of changing the laws. And it was a stupendous feat of organization, if you think about it, without any of the travel or communication advantages that we take for granted today. When the movement began in the mid-19th century, passenger train travel was really in its infancy. The telegraph had just been invented. There was no telephone. There was no typewriter. And even in 1920, when my book takes place, radio isn't in broad use yet. It will soon be, but it's not yet. As one young uh, editorial assistant in my publisher's office uh, told my editor, she had read the um, draft of the manuscript, and she came in and she said, I don't understand how these women did it without Facebook. (laughs) But they did. They held meetings and rallies, and they marched, which was not considered proper for women to do. It was really considered outrageous uh, for them to do that. They didn't wear pink pussy hats, but they did wear their marching uniforms, white dresses with yellow sashes. And here's some great marching pictures. Today, it's really hard for us to imagine how difficult it was for a woman to stand up and march, or in any way publicly advocate for women's rights. They had to, to endure contempt and ridicule when they did this in their communities, in their churches, in their clubs, and in the press. They were pelted with rotten eggs and spoiled vegetables. And I'm, we're going to see some rather graphic anti-suffrage images now. Here's one what I would do with the suffragists. Again, it's all about silencing women. Here's another. Which do you prefer? To be a loving mother or a crazed suffragist on the street? They were pelted with rotten eggs and spoiled vegetables. In fact, Susan Anthony said that she could mark the progress of the movement by what projectiles were thrown at her. When the eggs became just plain eggs and not rotten, she thought that was progress. They were attacked by mobs of angry men and boys. They were denounced as radicals, perverts, traitors, anarchists, bad wives and mothers, of course, even Bolsheviks. They were derided as unattractive, unsexed, she-men. Why would an attractive woman want the vote? There's no reason. And the men who supported them were belittled as Mabels and Nancys. Uh, Guess which one is supposedly the suffragist? And here's a, a view of what home life would be if women were able to vote. You'll notice mom is smoking cigars and reading the sporting news while dad is holding a screaming baby. This is a um, 
continuing motif, as we'll see. And uh, he's having to make his own, sew his own clothes. Here's another one. Election day. What's going to happen? Mom is going to sail off, abandon the family, and dad again has the screaming baby. They weren't subtle about their fears about what would happen if women gained the right to vote, had a sense of social and political equality. Clearly, they were frightening. Here's my favorite, bed of trouble. Do we see a theme emerging here? Despite the obstacles, the suffrage movement nurtured great feminist philosophers and orators, activists and politicians, including the extraordinary 50-year partnership of two New Yorkers, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. I forged the thunderbolts and she hurled them, is the way Stanton described their working together. Stanton was thought and Anthony was action. And that action included Susan Anthony practicing disobedience by voting in the 1872 presidential election, testing the legal theory that as a citizen, she inherently possessed the right to vote and she just had to exercise it. I have been and gone and done it, Susan gleefully wrote to Elizabeth that morning. Here's a depiction of the woman who dared. This is uh, Susan Anthony wearing an Uncle Sam cap. She was soon arrested, put on trial, and convicted of illegal voting in a federal election. She pleaded her case to the public in more than 50 talks, asking, is it a crime for a U.S. citizen to vote? And that's a question that we are still asking ourselves today. The failure of this voting experiment, more than 150 women, including Sojourner Truth, actually attempted to vote in the 1872 elections, led Stanton and Anthony to draft a constitutional amendment, which would supersede all the state laws which prohibited women from voting. It was introduced into Congress in 1878, and it was stalled there for 40 years. Every year, the suffragists would faith faithfully climb up Capitol Hill and testify before whatever congressional uh, committee was holding a hearing. And Elizabeth Stanton wrote in her memoirs that she would see the chairman of whatever committee it was polishing his shoes, clipping his nails, reading the newspaper, doing anything but listening to her. And she had to restrain herself, she said, from throwing her manuscript at his head. She was so frustrated. The suffragists also had to pursue, at the same time, a long line of elected officials and U.S. presidents who tried to ignore them as best they could. Here's a wonderful Life magazine depiction of Elizabeth, uh, pardon me, of Susan Anthony going after some senator. Uh, with her fearsome umbrella. She was always depicted with that umbrella. Here she is again with the umbrella, tr uh, uh, chasing after Grover Cleveland. But in 1870, uh, pardon me, in 1912, they finally secured their first presidential endorsement from a man whose park and statue stands just a few blocks away, Theodore Roosevelt. 
TR's Progressive Party put a plank in their ticket uh, supporting women's suffrage and the constitutional amendment. And Jane Addams, great suffragist, actually gave the nominating speech at the convention. Um, and here's how it was depicted. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll leave it to you for the interpretation. The other political parties took a bit longer to be convinced. Meanwhile, the suffragists went to work in the states, which can confer suffrage upon its citizens by either legislative action or um, a popular referendum. The western states were more sympathetic to enfranchising women. The territory of Wyoming entered the, uh, the Union in 1869, refusing to not bring their women voters uh, with them. And so they're the first state. Uh, Colorado, Idaho, and Utah followed. Now, this willingness of the western states is often lauded, and it, it is wonderful. There's a sense of partnership in uh, forging the wilderness. But it's also true that those western states needed women. It was really a, a sort of a chamber of commerce campaign to get women to, to move there. N New York State, which did not need to do that, it was the most populous state in the nation, was in an almost constant state of suffrage agitation. The National Association made its headquarters here, first on Fifth Avenue, then on Madison, and so many of the leaders lived here. The financial benefactors were here, Alva Vanderbilt Belmont and Miriam Leslie, New York City was also the home of the men and women anti-suffrage associations. In fact, the longtime president of the National Association opposed to women's suffrage was Mrs. James Wadsworth, the wife of the Republican senator from New York. He, in turn, led the anti-suffrage lobby in Congress. There was quite a couple. New York City became the laboratory for testing new stratagems and techniques. The suffs were ingenious and sometimes outrageous. So here's a few examples. At the dedication ceremonies of the Statue of Liberty in 1886, New York suffragists took advantage of the occasion. They hired a barge and got their message across by holding a banner up on the bow that said, well, American women have no liberty. And every July 4th, the suffragists staged a protest at the foot of the statue. The suffragists performed another Lady Liberty publicity stunt in December 1916 when President Woodrow Wilson was sailing down the Hudson in the presidential yacht, the Mayflower, to flick the switch on the electric lights which would now illuminate the Statue of Liberty. It was a really big deal. And the suffrage bird women were prepared to meet him. The plan was for a biplane plane piloted by women, graduates of the Wright Brothers Flying School in Dayton, Ohio, to fly above the yacht and bombard it with votes for women leaflets. And here are the pilots. Strong winds forced the women to abandon the mission, but they got great publicity anyway. In 1915, suffrage leaders Carrie Chapman Catt and Molly Hay, who lived right nearby on 85th and Central Park West, launched a campaign to put a woman's suffrage referendum on the state ballot. 
suffrage activists had actually gathered enough petitions to put women's suffrage on the ballot in four eastern states. Eastern states were really slow to um, uh, even consider women's suffrage. And here, again, it's in four states, so it's a big, one of those sort of super Tuesday kind of events where it's going on in four states at once. In Boston, the suffragists campaigned with hot air balloons. You can see they are dropping leaflets from the hot air balloons. In Pennsylvania, they went after sports celebrity endorsements. Dear Mr. Baseball fan, giving all the reasons that uh, vote yes and give Pennsylvania women a chance to score. New York and New Jersey cooperated in one of my favorite suffrage campaign stunts, passing the suffrage torch. Louisiane Havemeyer, widow of Hav Harry Havemeyer of the American Sugar Refinery Company, the Sugar King he was called, uh, and their Impressionist art collection, you can see at the Metropolitan Museum today, was also an ardent suffragist. Here she is passing the suffrage torch from the women of New York to the women of New Jersey. She's bobbing on the deck of a tugboat in the middle of the Hudson River, and she was very seasick, she reported. She almost didn't make it. The Empire State Campaign, of which this was part, distributed 10 million pieces of literature in the state and held hundreds of rallies in every town. But it failed in all four states. The men, who were the only ones who could vote, voted it down. Carrie Catt vowed that suffrage was not defeated, it was just delayed, and a new campaign would begin in the morning. Victory in 17 was the new motto. As ever, persistence was the key to achieving the goal. So the 1917 campaign here was even more elaborate, more marches, more publicity. And this time it was successful. On election night 1917, the New York Times building flashed three white beacons to signal that the suffrage referendum had passed. Think of it as Twitter of a century ago. <laughs> it was a pivotal victory. It helped convince Congress and the president that women were gaining political power. Now, the women of New York State could vote in all elections, joining a select group of only about eight or 10 states where women, women had won the franchise but the women in the other states, most other states, could not and probably would never gain suffrage from their states. Only a constitution, constitutional amendment would rescue them. And still, the federal amendment was stalled in Congress. Frustration with this congressional delay and the slow pace of progress in the states caused a rift in the American suffrage movement, much as it had in the British suffrage movement. The movement split. As reform movements often do, we see this happen in most reform movements. In the labor movement, you have the wobblies who go off to become, uh, take a more uh, confrontational approach. You see this in the civil rights movement of the 20th century. You see this in the gay rights movement. It's sort of a natural evolution. But a new generation of suffragists, the third generation, had grown impatient. 
They were no longer willing to wait, to ask, to plead politely. They were willing to be aggressive, to be rude, to be unladylike. Does this sound familiar? To demand, to be disruptive, even to break the law. A young Quaker woman from New Jersey named Alice Paul, who had trained with the radical wing of suffragists in the UK, returned home to, as she called it, blast the American movement out of its lethargy. Her National Women's Party would do things that had never been done before. They picketed the White House. They protested on the steps of the Capitol. And they burned Woodrow Wilson in effigy. During wartime, it was considered treasonous. And while Carrie Catt, who was a pacifist, made the wrenching decision that it was better for the suffrage movement to publicly support the war when we entered it in 1917, it would prove the suffragist patriotism. Alice Paul and her National Women's Party refused to support the war effort. They emphasized the hypocrisy of it all. How can we be fighting a war to make the world safe for democracy when half of the citizens in our own nation are denied the vote? And democracy begins at home was their motto. And again, here are the the Brooklyn suffragists who are preparing in case we are invaded. That's why they're learning to be sharpshooters. And here, democracy should begin at home. Again, another... A phrase that seems particularly timely right now. Hundreds of women's party suffragists were arrested, including Louisiane Havemeyer, on bogus charges like obstructing the sidewalk. They were just uh, exercising their First Amendment rights, and they served time in jail for their civil disobedience. They were held in decrepit, vermin-infested cells. They were physically assaulted clubbed, tied to the wall, not allowed to even talk to one another. They communicated by singing. And when they refused to eat, because they considered themselves political prisoners, they were force-fed with tubes rammed down their throats. When they were released, they toured the country in a great publicity uh, maneuver. They had copies of their prison uniforms, tailor-made, Um, And they rented a Pullman car, and they toured the U.S. uh, for over a month, all living together. And then they would get out at every town and city, and they would hold marches and rallies, and they would appeal to the public and say, we are your mothers, your sisters, your wives, and we have been in prison for asking for the vote. And this began to turn public opinion once again. And here's another, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. They really made a very strong point. Finally, when World War I ended, the suffragists pushed hard again to win congressional approval. And finally, in June of 1919, the 19th Amendment won approval of both houses and went to the states for ratification. New York was, you should be proud, among the first states to ratify in a special midnight session held in Albany. And you'll be celebrating uh, that centennial on June 16th of this year, very soon. Now, a year later, in the summer of 1920, the amendment was on the cusp of victory or possibly defeat. 
as it arrived in Tennessee, because Tennessee was a very dangerous place to be staging this definitive battle for women's suffrage. Nearly all the other southern states had already rejected the 19th Amendment, and all for the same blatantly racist reasons. States' rights, and they did not want black women to vote. The suffragists faced an uphill battle in Tennessee, but they had no choice. It was their last best hope. So all the forces for and against women's suffrage converge upon Nashville, and the campaign generals arrive. National suffrage leader Carrie Chapman Catt, the protege of Susan Anthony, brilliant strategist, brilliant orator, the chief, comes down from New York to spend six miserable weeks in Nashville leading the strategy for the ratification campaign. Her legacy was on the line in this campaign. Also arriving at Nashville Union Station on the very same night is young Sue Shelton White, who is a native Tennessean, a working girl, who um, comes down, is assigned by Alice Paul to lead the campaign for the Women's Party. So you have two different suffrage organizations with the same goal, working separately, and all living in the same hotel. You can imagine, it got a little sticky sometimes. We also, on that same night, have the arrival of Josephine Pearson, the leader of the Tennessee anti-suffragists, who had promised her dying mother that she would fight the scourge of women's suffrage if it ever reached Tennessee. So she arrived from her home in the southern mountains of Tennessee to defend her home state from what she described as the feminist peril. They were joined by more than a thousand men and women from across the nation and around the state, all entering the fray. There were powerful forces at work, working against women's suffrage in Nashville, political, corporate, and ideological foes, each having their own reason for opposing women and the federal women's suffrage and the federal amendment. There were politicians and political parties who feared this unpredictable new voting bloc. 27 million women would be eligible to vote, and no one knew how they were going to vote. So the parties were trying to keep the status quo, at least through the presidential election. Let's just put the brakes on this ratification thing. Clergymen, some were supporters, but many were opposed to suffrage because they believed it went against the plan, God's plan. Because she had made Adam to be dominant over Eve, and for any questioning of that, went against biblical teachings. And so they used Bible quotations to fight against the amendment. Corporations were often against women getting anywhere near the, battle the ballot box. They thought it might be bad for business. The textile manufacturers were very afraid that women voters might want to abolish child labor. And they depended upon child labor. It was cheap. So they didn't want women anywhere near. The liquor industry feared that women voters, who had been very um, supportive of temperance and then prohibition, again, some at, for moral reasons, but others because it was a domestic violence issue. 
It was the only way women could protect themselves uh, was to shut off the supply of liquor. That's how it was, it was uh, felt at the time. And they were afraid that even though prohibition is in effect in the summer of 1920, that if women are, um, are allowed to vote, that it will be strictly enforced. They're hoping it won't be strictly enforced. So if they can keep women away from the ballot box, maybe they can elect what they called a wet Congress and wet legislatures in the states who would just kind of give a wink and a nod and not enforce prohibition. So the liquor lobby went all out and spent a lot of money in Nashville. They sponsored a speakeasy on the eighth floor of the Hermitage Hotel where everyone is staying. Remember, prohibition is in effect, but it was called the Jack Daniels Suite after Tennessee's favorite liquor, where legislators were plied 24-7 with uh, all the liquor they could handle or not handle, uh, and they had to listen to arguments about why they should vote against ratification. So there's wonderful scenes in the book of um, legislators bouncing off the walls, singing at the top of their lungs, and having to be thrown into showers to sober up to be able to go into the chamber to vote. But the most passionate foes of the 19th Amendment turned out to be women. That women might oppose the enfranchisement of their own sisters was really shocking to me when I discovered it in my research. And some of these antis or antis will surprise you. Women like the muckraking journalist Ida Torbell, who had single-handedly brought down John D. Rockefeller and the oil trust with her articles for McClure's magazine, but she became an officer of the National Anti-Suffrage Association. Another surprise, the founder of Barnard College, there may be some Barnard women here, Annie Nathan Meyer, believed deeply in educating young women, but believed equally deeply that they should not be able to vote. Figure that one out. Also, and this always brings gasps from my audience, Eleanor Roosevelt. Now, she's not an anti-suffragist, but she never supports the movement. And in fact, when, Amer when New York women do get the vote and can vote in 1918 elections, she refuses to vote. You will see her ambivalence and her evolution in the book, and she will soon uh, come to her political senses, become a, um, a protege of Carrie Catt, and join the League of Women Voters. Now, many other anti-suffrage women were social and religious and political conservatives who feared that suffrage would bring about a profound and unhealthy shift in gender roles. It would endanger the American family and bring about what they called the moral collapse of the nation. It would alter private life as well as public life. Here we go. All these anti-suffrage posters. And here's one of my favorite anti-suffrage broadsides. It's called America When Feminized. And if you can't see it clearly, I'll describe it. There is a rooster and a hen, and the hen is wearing a votes for women sash. She's just left the nest, and the rooster calls after her, but ma, the eggs are going to get cold. And she calls back, sit on them yourself, old man. My country calls me. 
and one of the taglines is, a vote for federal suffrage is a vote for organized female nagging forever. I want a bumper sticker. (laughs) Now, this is an important reminder that the debate over women's suffrage was never just a political debate. It was also a social and cultural and, for some, a moral debate about the role of women in society. It was a precursor to what we now would call the culture wars, and that's what made it so difficult. There were layers of meaning and passion uh, that made it much more complicated. So all sides confront one another in Nashville, and it gets wild. There's bribes and booze and propaganda and blackmail, spies and conspiracies, kidnappings and fistfights, betrayal and courage. The newspapers call it suffrage Armageddon. And the outcome remains in doubt until the very last moment. And I won't spoil it for you. But it does come down to a single vote of conscience by the youngest member of the Tennessee legislature who receives a letter from his mother. Now, all this took place almost a century ago. But I think you will find the story I tell in the Women's Hour to be a book of history with surprising and perhaps even unnerving modern themes. It helps explain where we've been, but also where we are right now. It deals with topics that dominate our headlines today. Voting rights and voter suppression, women's rights, inequality, dark money in politics, the role of religion in public policy, and racism because the history of suffrage in America is inevitably a story about race. In Nashville, there are cries of white supremacy and states' rights. The Ku Klux Klan is invoked as a dog whistle, and the Confederate flag is waved in defiance. And here is Josephine Pearson on your right at the opening of the anti-suffrage headquarters in the Hermitage Hotel, Between her and her colleague is the oldest Civil War veteran they could dig up. And uh, he is holding a standard uh, that identifies him as part of the Nathan Bedford Forest Brigade, which um, those of you who know your Civil War history know he was a um, Confederate general, but he was also a founder of the Ku Klux Klan. There's many, many symbols in this photograph, which was their big publicity photo, and um, anyone in Tennessee knew how to read it. And of course, we've certainly been hearing echoes of all of that again lately. And oh, did I mention, so the whole story takes place during a bitter presidential election, where the campaign slogan for the Republican candidate, who is a known womanizer and is being blackmailed by one of his many mistresses, and has just paid hush money to keep her quiet, (laughs) is America first, Warren G. Harding. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I wrote this book before the 2016 election. In fact, I submitted the manuscript on the day before the election. And there's someone in the audience who will remember that very, very well. I 
pushed the send button. It flew through the ether to the desk of my literary agent and my editor, and they responded, hurrah, great timing. Well, it was more timely than we could have even known because this story of American women's long fight for democracy and the final battle in Nashville has taken on layers of meaning I could not have anticipated. This history of grassroots activists fighting for their rights enters a new dimension as rights we've assumed were secure, voting rights, citizenship rights, press freedom, women's rights, appear to be endangered again. And this history of women's political leadership resonates as an historic number of women run for office at every level of government, and more women are serving in the U.S. Congress, 131, than ever before. And I should tell you that every woman in Congress, as of this week, has received a copy of the Women's Hour. Compliments of my publisher. Someone... Someone mentioned it's the men in Congress who need it, but I could not ask them for 535 copies. There are important lessons to be learned, I believe, from the fight for women's suffrage. That social change is hard and political change is slow. Social change is slow and political change is hard. That progress does not always run in a straight line. That the struggle to expand our democracy is ongoing. It was not won in 1920. It's not over today. And it teaches us also that reform movements are imperfect. The story of women's suffrage is inspiring, but also a cautionary tale. It's complicated. It's messy. There are moral compromises made that make us very uncomfortable today. Oops. I hope that the story of, that I tell in the Women's Hour will teach a new generation of activists that protest for justice is patriotic and necessary, but it must be followed by well-designed and sustained political strategies. The suffragists did not just picket and protest. They debated and lobbied and drafted legislation and campaigned. And they didn't rest after the 19th Amendment entered the Constitution. Carrie Catt founded the League of Women Voters. Alice Paul drafted the Equal Rights Amendment, which was introduced into Congress in 1923. It's still not ratified. It's been 96 years. And black women, Native American women, and Asian women had to keep fighting for decades longer to secure their right to vote. The vote is a prayer as Carrie Catt described it, the vote is power. And today, we must protect the vote for all citizens. And it's our sacred duty to use that vote to improve our democracy. When Carrie Catt returned to New York from Tennessee, there was a great parade uh, when she arrived at Pennsylvania Station. She went home and she wrote a note to the newly enfranchised women of America. It's both a benediction and a charge, and I find it as meaningful and stirring today as it was 99 years ago. She wrote, the vote is the emblem of your equality, women of America, the guarantee of your liberty. That vote of yours has cost millions of dollars 
and the lives of thousands of women. Women have suffered agony of soul, which you can never comprehend that you and your daughters might inherit political freedom. That vote has been costly. Prize it. The vote is a, po- <clears throat> the vote is a power, a weapon of offense and defense, a prayer. Use it intelligently, conscientiously, prayerfully. Progress is calling to you to make no pause. Act. Thank you very much. Okay. We have some questions. Which nation was first to enfranchise women, if not England? How did women get the vote there? Uh, I believe New Zealand was the first uh, to, um, to enfranchise women, and America was the 27th. There were 26 nations that went before us. In fact, Carrie Cat often used that as a little um, uh, uh, make people feel guilty, including... Russia, and Germany gave their women the vote before we did. In England, um, Act of Parliament gave the vote to women in 1918. They celebrated their centennial last year, but it only went to some women. The, the law was that it, you had to be a um, uh, landowner, uh, taxpayer. Again, it's a class society, so it was more class-based. But what's interesting is you also had to be over 30 years old, 30 years or older. I thought, that's kind of odd. Why 30 years old? Is that maturity? No. It was because they had lost over a million men in World War I. And they felt if they allowed all women over 21 to vote, it would be imbalanced. There'd be too many women. And so it took another decade, 1928, when women uh, 21 and older in Great Britain actually get the vote. So it's a partial enfranchisement in 1918. Okay, another question. Although the 19th Amendment was passed almost 100 years ago, women are still underrepresented across all three branches of government. Why do you think this is? How much longer do you think we will need to wait until we see equal representation? Um, Susan Anthony said in the 1870s that there will never be true equality until American women choose their lawmakers and help make the laws. So it's been a long time. I think um, some of the same resistance that we saw in some some of the uh, images and words that I presented tonight are at work. Um, I think... It is unconscionable that, that it's taken this long. In one of the pieces of research that I found in a newspaper in 1920, so this is September 1920, just a few weeks after enfranchisement, when the uh, ratification occurred in, on August 26th, there was a full-page ad, uh, not pardon me, full-page article in uh, the New York, I believe it was the New York Herald, And it described, it said, who has the presidential timber? And it described the suffrage leaders and what their qualifications were and which ones would be running for president in 1924. And it was very serious. It was not 
you know, wasn't a joke. They took it very seriously. Carrie Catt has all this diplomatic experience, and Alice Paul has this, and went down who could be Secretary of State. So the idea that it's taken so long, I, I can't really explain it, except it's a deep, deep resistance, which, of course, we're going to see again as we enter a new election cycle. Uh, ah, a good question here. Was there strong voter turnout by women in the years immediately following, following the passage of the 19th Amendment? And how does this compare with modern voter turnout? The answer is no. There was not strong turnout in the 1920 election. Only about um, a third of eligible women voted. And Carrie Catt was asked about that. She said, well, you worked so hard. What happened? And she said, you know, voting is a learned experience. You have to get used to voting. And when you think of it, women had the legal right to vote. But in small towns and in conservative areas, they, their pastors may have still been against voting. Their you know, their garden club may have been against it. Their husbands may have been against it. And so it took a certain fortitude and um, ability to have a thick skin to actually go to the polling place and exercise that vote. That said, it was, it was a disappointment to the suffragists. And it's only until the 1960s when women's participation begins to match those of men. And it's around 1980 that it has surpassed it, and it's surpassed it ever since. More women participate in elections than men. But our participation rates are very, very low anyway, uh, especially in non, non-presidential years. And that's something we really have to work at. If we call ourselves a democracy, we have to make it easier to vote, not harder to vote. And so I think that's, that's an important thing. But yeah, it was, it was a great disappointment to the suffragists that it did not happen quicker. How did white become the color symbol associated with suffrage? Well, it was purity, that kind of thing. Um, again, it, white has all kinds of symbolic meanings, and I think the suffragists were trying to make themselves also presentable, more acceptable. They were considered radicals. They were considered subversives. And so by adopting a bridal color uh, of purity and innocence and um, meaningfulness. Uh, I think they were trying to send that that kind of um, uh, approach to to try to cloak them in something that was a little more uh, acceptable to the public because they were not acceptable. Um, they were really uh, considered out of balance, and so I think white becomes uh, a color that that they can. Uh, they can uh, make themselves feel more acceptable. Um, and then there's the uh, sort of accent colors of yellow and has all kinds of meanings. And then the British have purple and, and gold. Uh, and then some of that comes back to the Women's Party and they have purple and white and green. So you'll see a, a whole range of suffrage colors. Um, and as the centennial approaches, I think you're going to see some, some great outfits. I've seen some suffrage reenactors and they're quite something. Why was it that the far west states were so early to let women vote while the modern and high tech New Yorkers resisted so long? Um, again, 
In the West, there was more of a sense of partnership in, in building society, but it's also true that they needed women, and it was an advertisement to bring women uh, the vote. But there's all kinds of, of interesting reasons why California... Now, California gives women the vote, I believe, in oh, around 1911, uh, but it took like five tries. They did not get it on the first try. So it takes uh, a coalition of men men in political power who are pushing for it. And again, sometimes they say, well, it's a whole new voting block for me. So there's all kinds of reasons that male politicians would um, accept it and endorse it and campaign for it besides a love of justice. <laughs> uh, what press coverage, what, what was press coverage like during the era? Was there a majority positive or negative coverage? That's a really great pr question. It was mixed. In every city, there were pro-suffrage and anti-suffrage newspapers. The New York Times was the great anti-suffrage newspaper in New York. Uh, it, it's very interesting. The, the Ox family also owned the Chattanooga Times. In fact, they owned the Chattanooga Times before the New York Times. And it also was the great anti-suffrage newspaper in Tennessee. So I got to read them both. And uh, again, there was in, in the city I live in, in Baltimore, the Baltimore Sun was anti-suffrage. Uh, the Washington Post, a little, little sort of one way some years and another uh, the next. So it was very interesting. There really were anti-suffrage coverage and pro-suffrage coverage, uh, and everyone understood that. Now, the reporting, the news reporting, was often pretty accurate. It was in the editorials, and sometimes you saw a little edge to the reporting, too, and I had to read those accounts, and I read many, many newspaper accounts from all over the country, and you had to sort of know what their stand was uh, to, to be able to interpret it. Do women still... Uh, face voter disenfranchisement in the modern day? If so, in what ways? Uh, I'd say if you were uh, a minority woman, yes, your community definitely does face voter uh, intimidation, suppression, um, making it difficult to vote. Here in New York, I know you don't have early voting. Uh, in Maryland, we do, which means that if you're a working person, you can vote when it's convenient. And there's all kinds of ways, not putting uh, enough polling machines in a district can make it harder for working people and minority people to, to vote. So there's all kinds of uh, blatant and also subtle ways that you can make voting more difficult. And we've seen some outrageous examples of that in the last cycle. I hope we won't see that again. Um, I'm not sure I'd bet on that. Okay, time for one more. Ah, given all the voter suppression going on in the U.S. today, what specific ideas for actions today do you have inspired by your research? Again, make it easier to vote. Make it harder for um, suppressors uh, to act. One of the things I did learn in my research is that Congress has and has always had the power to enforce the 15th and the 19th Amendments. It's written right in that clause. They have the power to enforce it, and they have chosen not to. And so that's something we might want to bring up with our Congress, uh, why they haven't. I mean, there are all kinds of other laws, uh, and the Voting Rights Act, which has been um, uh, 
made less effective by by the Supreme Court. But their Congress does have a role in this, and they have, to my mind, not lived up to it. So I think that's that's it for the question. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.